Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Michael Moss. First, wanted to let you know that if you enjoy this conversation or any of my author chats enough to want to buy the book, I've made it simple for you. Just click on the book title through the episode description wherever you're listening to this podcast, and it takes you to a link to buy it through bookshop.org. I love bookshop.org because it connects readers with independent bookstores. And for the latest on this show, please do follow us on social media. That's Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Books on Pod. Hi, this is Mark Bittman author of Animal Vegetable Junk. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Michael Moss is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and number one New York Times bestselling author of Salt, Sugar, Fat. His newest book is titled Hooked, Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions. Michael, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm really good. Thanks for having me. Sure. So what was your goal with this book, Michael? My goal was to was to answer the question I got hit with from a reporter the very moment my previous book, Salt Sugar Fat, came out, which was, you know, Michael, you write at the end of the book that knowledge is power and ultimately people just have to read your book to kind of figure out, you know, and, and to control kind of what they eat and how much. But isn't the stuff you're writing about addictive like drugs? And I'm like, thinking to myself, well, well, I mean, well, I mean, really? I don't think so. And I'm sort of backpedaling in the interview and trying to evade the question. And eventually I got really intrigued by that question and came full circle to believe that in many ways, these food products I'm writing about are actually more addictive than cigarettes, alcohol, and even some drugs because the way that the industry is able to not just use salt, sugar, fat, and other things you can see on the ingredient label, but to tap our deepest basic biological instincts to get us to love their products and want more. And early on in this book, you tackle the general subject of addiction, including explaining that addiction is not necessarily a binary thing. There are different levels of addiction, and not everyone is addicted to the same substance. Is there a simple way to define addiction? Yeah, in fact, I turned to none other than the processed food industry itself for a definition that I thought was actually perfect and I used throughout the book. The source was none other than Philip Morris, the largest tobacco manufacturer in North America. This was back in 2000 but also the largest manufacturer of processed food because Philip Morris owned Kraft and Nabisco and General Foods before that. And fascinatingly, you know, Philip Morris was the first of the big tobacco companies that completely flipped on the question of addiction in smoking. And after decades of denying that smoking was addictive, Philip Morris publicly said, yes, you got us, it is addictive. And not long after that, the CEO of the company was asked in some legal proceedings, so what's your definition of addiction? And he goes, addiction is a repetitive behavior that some people find difficult to quit. And I love that definition for a couple of reasons. One, it's what sort of addiction experts have been shifting towards after years of kind of being hung up over whether an addictive substance has to cause withdrawal or tolerance levels. And they got away from that because all drugs don't act the same. 
But I also like the word some in that definition because not all of us lose control for all of these food products. Just like not all of us lose control with cigarettes, alcohol, drugs. I met and sat down with the former top lawyer for Philip Morris, Steve Parrish, who explained to me how he could smoke one cigarette all day in a business meeting, put his pack away, not smoke in the evening at home, in bars, restaurants, what have you. But he couldn't go near the company's other gigantic brand product, Oreo cookies, for fear of eating the whole bag in one sitting and losing control. So if you look at and you talk to drug experts, as I did, sort of addiction happens on this spectrum where not all of us are affected the same way or at all times of the day or all times of our lives. It's a shifting thing depending on our vulnerabilities. For a long time, we didn't even recognize that food may have addictive qualities, but that is more generally accepted now. What is the very ominous-sounding head shrinker, and how did it help food addiction researchers find a connection between cheeseburgers and cocaine? Yeah, so one of the things that drug researchers had trouble with, and any sort of addiction researchers, is sitting people down and asking them questions about why and how it is they go crazy for certain substances. And that's kind of especially true with food because it's almost easier to admit an addiction to heroin than it is to cheeseburgers. And so back in the... Ooh, I think it was the 70s, 80s, the Department of Energy had an atomic research center. It still does out in Brookhaven, Long Island. And they helped invent kind of the first brain scanner machine that was able to go inside and sort of take some measure of the brain's reaction to substances coming into the body and or just to sort of people talking and trying to sort of explain themselves. And they dubbed it the head shrinker because it kind of cut through the lies we tell ourselves, if you will, about why we fall so hard for things that we try to quit. And they discovered a link between what's happening chemically in the brain with food and what's happening with more seemingly addictive substances like cocaine too, correct? Yeah, so one of the big defenses I got from the food industry was, you know, Michael, how can you call Twinkies addictive? They don't have the addictive, harsh chemicals that you find in tobacco or alcohol or narcotics, right? Like, where's the addictive drug? And what I learned from scientists who used to study drug addiction and now study food addiction, including Nora Volkow, head of the National Institute Sort of Addiction Center, is that food doesn't need these harsh drugs. It uses the natural chemicals in our brain. We're living, walking chemical laboratories who produce things like dopamine and other hormones. And we have neurotransmitters in our body, all geared toward getting us to do things that the body thinks are good for us. And this is one of the fundamental vulnerabilities we have with addiction and food. As one of my favorite scientists, Dana Small, pointed out, it's not so much that food is addictive, is that we, by nature, 
are drawn toward food to eat and even to overeat. And the companies have changed the nature of our food. And so it's the body's own natural chemicals that are stimulating us and in fact, even producing cravings, even to the point of losing control. That's the issue in all substances, whether it's food or drugs. Anna Rose Childress is a clinician and researcher in Philly. She discovered that even flashing an image of the abused substance to an addict for milliseconds can cause a dopamine reaction that resulted in intense compulsion. Just how damning is this notion to the idea of food addiction? Well, one of the key elements of addiction, whether it's drugs or food, is speed. The faster the substance can get to the brain, the more apt the brain is going to be to sort of respond impulsively, compulsively to that input, to that signal that's coming to the brain. It's, it's one of our big vulnerabilities. And there's nothing faster in the way that it strikes the reward center of the brain than these food products we're talking about, which you know, are called ultra-processed food or convenience food, or I'm starting to call it sort of fast groceries. And yes, kind of just looking at the image is one thing, but there was this wonderful experiment that was done some years ago where a researcher sat people down and said, I'd like to measure how fast you detect the taste of sweetness. So he put some sugar on their tongue and asked them to push a button when they detected sweet taste. And so sugar goes on the tongue. The taste buds pick up the sensation of the sugar, send a signal to the reward center of the brain, which send a signal back to the finger. And those test subjects were pushing that button in less than one second, an average of eight tenths of a second. Compared to, say, cigarette smoke, which can take as long as 10 seconds to sort of fully activate the brain, alcohol and drugs are somewhere in between. And, and for me, that's just sort of opened, you know, a window and a light bulb went on. And I started looking at fast food kind of in a whole other way, because this food is made to be fast in a way that excites the brain. And again, sort of puts us in the situation of of losing control and losing our free will to make these basic decisions about what and how much to eat. So fat, salt, and sugar are essentially cheat codes with regards to getting that chemical reaction in your brain, even as opposed to some of the most hardcore drugs out there. Yeah, and that's why I wrote Salt, Sugar, Fat, the first book, was to sort of focus on those three ingredients as this unholy trinity that gets us to love these food products. And then with Hawked, it's like I realized, wait a minute, that's not even half the story. There's a whole lot more going on with this product in which they're using us and our basic instincts to not just love their products, but to want more and more. I mean, we by nature are drawn to food that's inexpensive, meaning needing less energy expenditure on our part. When we were in hunter-gatherer societies, it made much more sense to not run down an impala for dinner, but to grab an aardvark that's sitting there. And so the companies use chemistry labs, chemical labs, to reformulate their ingredients in order to reduce the cost, knowing that if they can knock 10 cents off the price of a box of breakfast toaster 
pastries, we're going to get excited about that in this kind of basic instinctual way. We love as a basic instinct variety. And if you think back in time, evolutionarily, humans had to adapt to vastly different types of food sources and fall in love even with eating whale blubber in some places in, in the world. And you've heard of the smorgasbord effect, right? Where you're at the buffet table and you're loading up your plate and there's a new thing every step along the buffet and your brain is going, wow, newness, put it on your plate. Even though you're already full, you're still reaching for that new thing because of the the power variety. I mean, step into the cereal aisle of the grocery store. This is why there are 200 versions of sugary starch there because the companies know we get excited over the calories. And maybe one of the most important ways that they've changed the nature of our food, especially in the last 50 years, is with calories. We, by instinct, love calories, maybe even more than salt, sugar, fat. We have sensors in the gut, possibly in the mouth, that tell us how many calories there are in the drink or the food that's coming in. And the brain guides us toward those foods that have more calories. Well, the industry has notoriously sort of taken calories and shoved them into these dense, compact items. Think of your favorite snack food loaded with calories. I was looking at a little bag of corn chips the other day, 1,440 calories. That's almost as much as some people will eat an entire day. And what those calories tend to do also is to overwhelm the brain with stimulus. So it's even harder to sort of push back on the temptation to overeat. Separately, as people are well aware, sugar and fat do arouse the brain. But when combined, these two things create a much larger reaction. Why do they work in cahoots so well together? Sugar and fat, yes. So one of the things, and one scientist I met called us infovores because we kind of love information for information's sake. And one of the ideas or the thinking here, and this is still theoretical, though, is that sugar and fat, as well as salt, send signals to the brain using different pathways. And so if you think about the reward center of the brain being that part of the brain that gets us to do things by rewarding us with feelings of pleasure, when it's getting different signals from different pathways, and, and fat, by the way, typically sends a signal to the brain, not through taste buds, it's believed, but through the trigeminal nerve, which comes down from the roof of your mouth. And so they're hitting the brain from kind of different directions. And that combination seems to provide this synergy where researchers discovered that if you add a little cream to sugar or a little sugar to cream, the thinking part of the brain, which scientists like to call the stop brain, where our executive function lives and our free will, and, and it's, it's where we go, hey, wait a minute, Michael, I think you're getting too much of this milkshake, tends to fall asleep when you have that luscious combination of fat and sweetness. You love Cheez-Its, Michael, but when you visited the Kellogg's headquarters in Michigan, they specially made some Cheez-Its for you without salt. What was the difference in taste? <laughs> that was the single most god-awful eating experience I ever had. The Cheez-Its without salt stuck to the roof of our mouth. We couldn't swallow them because salt adds texture and solubility. And the 
The lesson that Kellogg's wanted to teach me was that salt is much more than about taste for them or what the industry calls the flavor burst because salt is typically, especially on the outside of snacks, it's the first thing that the taste buds pick up and that's the first thing that wows the brain. But for the engineers, for the chemists and the food technologists who engineer these products, salt is this miracle ingredient that does all kinds of things, including the texture and the solubility and adding color to food, masking some of the off notes or bad flavors that can slip into sort of highly processed foods. And it's why when you survey people in their eating habits, something like 75% of the salt that we typically get in our diet is from processed food, not from the salt shaker on the table. And the upshot of that is that the industry is more hooked on using salt than we are, in fact. It was in one of the Austin Powers movies that the fat bastard character said, quote, I eat because I'm unhappy and I'm unhappy because I eat. It's a vicious cycle. But we do uh. tend to consume crappy foods when we're going through tough times. Is there a biological or psychological explanation for this? I think some of it may have to do with memory because memory is kind of all powerful with food. And I, you know, I opened the book with the story of Jaslyn Bradley, who was the teenager in New York City who went after big food, specifically McDonald's for making her fat. And the world kind of laughed and she got slaughtered in the court. But her story was so compelling. And I think I was the first person to actually catch up with her a few years later after the case and just kind of heard her talk about her evolving relationship with food. And she said to me at one point, she said, you know, Michael, people who go to McDonald's, they're sitting at home, they're watching new TV, they, they see an ad, they're lonely, they're kind of looking for some emotional fulfillment. And so they go to that restaurant and, and have a meal. And, and I think that was so revealing because so often we eat not because we're truly biologically hungry, but because some emotional button in us gets punched. And again, the food companies are incredibly good at finding those emotional buttons with us. To wit, in the pandemic, we saw yet again at how clever they can be in adjusting their marketing strategies in order to sort of find and press those emotional buttons we thought in the pandemic we'd have a chance at least to sort of correct some of the worst parts of our eating habits and get away from the bending machine at work, right? Which is kind of one of the more notorious, treacherous parts of the processed food industry. But what happened was for many of us, we turned our kitchen cabinets into vending machines because we went to the grocery store with fear, with emotional alarm, and we're drawn toward buying products we hadn't had since we were kids because the memory of those things we had as kids never went away. They're in our heads and they just need a little bit of what psychiatrists call cues in order to grab our attention and bring us right back to when we were kids. And so the snack food companies did a couple of things. One, you know, they put out like silly advertising in which, say, for instance, two people were shown standing safely six feet apart, measuring the distance in foot-long bags of Doritos, sort of playing to that angst on our part. But then even more cleverly, 
the snack food companies themselves went into the grocery stores and kept the chips and the cookies aisles full and brimming and clean and polished. Did you notice how like yeast and flour disappeared in the grocery stores? Well, not true with the snacks because they controlled the distribution and the stacking and the presentation in the supermarket too. Again, sort of understanding how to capitalize on our emotional shopping and eating. Well, and another great example of capitalizing on our childhood experiences is a food that you referenced earlier, breakfast cereal, which you so accurately call, quote, sugar on the whole. Now, people woke up to the excessive amounts of sugar in our breakfast foods in the late 80s and early 1990s, forcing big food to actually address the issue. Their justification to the general public was, we did it for you. What do they mean by this? Yeah, I really love that story. So when we discovered how much sugar was actually in cereal, and there was a long time when they didn't actually say on the label how much was there, the companies responded by saying, look, your kids at the breakfast table, you're like putting on your makeup or combing your hair to go to work. Your house is crazy. Everybody's trying to get out. Nobody's watching them. And for all you know, they're taking the sugar ball and dumping it on their Cheerios, making them far more sugary. And I know this because as a kid, I used to actually take Captain Crunch, which was already incredibly sugary, and dump sugar on it when my parents were looking. But the point was, is that the industry kind of ironically was saying to us, let us take control of your kids. We'll give them a decent amount of sugar in their cereal. And that is the story of the bigger story of the processed food industry. We turned over to them things like convenience and things like the language of food and our rituals with food. And some of that may be good, but there's been a heavy, heavy price that we've paid for allowing these food giants to control what is so fundamentally a huge part of our lives and our health at a time when what we eat has never mattered more. Sugar, high fructose corn syrup, and other sweeteners seem to be in just about every hyper-processed food. And it seems to me that things got bad with the advent of high fructose corn syrup, which made sweetening foods cheaper in the late 1970s and early 80s. But in your estimation, when did added sugars become so rampant in our food supply? Well, you can really go back to the turn of the century, 1900, when there was this fight within the Kellogg family, right? So there was Dr. Kellogg, a physician who hated sugar, and then it was his younger brother, Will. They were running a spa out in Battle Creek, Michigan, and Will discovered that the plain, unsugary granola that Dr. Kellogg was feeding his patients, went over a whole lot better when Will slipped in sugar into the granola. And that was kind of one of the first times where you saw a processed food turn toward sugar in that way. Maybe the next big advent was kind of the invention of high fructose syrup, not because it was more sugary, but because it blended more easily into liquids. And that's really kind of when you saw the rise of soda sweetened drinks was because it dissolves more easily into soda and helped nudge the industry into pushing sugary drinks. And then we kind of go through this phase where the companies would get nervous about sugar. And so there were these situations where 
Some companies would be adding cane sugar and others were adding corn syrup. And depending on sort of which one scared us most, they would shift from one to the other. And today you can find as many as 56 or even 60 versions of sweet additives going into products, some of them being used just to kind of avoid using the name sugar or corn syrup on the label, knowing that we can sort of find that and identify it and be worried about that. But I'll tell you, there's another new development too, which is that many of these companies are now, you know, having gone around the grocery store and added sugar, engineered bliss points, as they call it, for sweetness and things that didn't used to be sweet before. Now they're going around the the grocery store, taking some of that sweetener out and adding fake sweeteners with no calories in order to address our concerns about overeating. And you're seeing lots of products now with not just one, but combinations of artificial and or even natural sort of non-calorie sweeteners, which is troubling to scientists because it hasn't been fully researched and studied from a health standpoint and or eating habits standpoint. We don't really know what these are doing to us. I'm glad you mentioned artificial sweeteners there because you point out that fruit flies are actually great research subjects to help us better understand human consumption. Why is this and how do fruit flies react to artificial sweeteners? Do you like beer? Love beer. Fruit flies love beer. They love fermented things. Of all the animals in the animal kingdom, right? Fruit flies are closest to humans in terms of what they love to eat. It's it's weird, right? This tiny little fly. It's not chimpanzees. It's like the tiny fruit flies. And so scientists study what they like and how they like it. And there was this, I mentioned this new trend of replacing caloric sugars with non-caloric sweeteners, fake sweeteners. So this terrific bunch of scientists got together and did this experiment where they took fruit flies and fed them their normal sort of diet and their normal diet with added fake sweetener on it. And the poor little fruit flies who got this fake sweeteners kind of just went like nutso. They went to this mode where they acted like they were starving, even though they weren't. And so they couldn't sleep. They couldn't sit still. They were buzzing around. All the characteristics of starving and what that might mean. I mean, this is still very raw science. Who knows? But what that might be pointing to is kind of the weird situation where you're eating something sweet and your brain goes, okay, I'm getting something sweet. That means calories are coming in and your gut gets all excited. And then the calories don't come. Something may happen in that kind of very backwards, strange, upside down kind of situation. And again, I think the more important point going back to science is that that is now becoming our food system at the will of these food giants without adequate science having been done to sort of figure out, is is that really a good thing for us? Big Food's nefariousness also extends to paying for research that comes to truly ludicrous conclusions in support of their products. Marion Nessel, a former guest on this show, did some digging on this beginning in 2015. What sort of ridiculousness did she uncover? Oh, stuff like breakfast cereal makes your kids smarter. And, well, I can't remember all of the things, but 
it kind of went on and on. And ridiculous is kind of the right word because the goal of that kind of science that the companies would fund was just sort of come up with some kind of marketing claim to put on the front of the label. And by and large, the experiments were not very good from a basic science sort of perspective. What caught my attention was another science project that PepsiCo undertook with good motivations. Back in 2008, PepsiCo was trying to respond to our growing concerns about what we put in our bodies and our growing movement to move away from the, the more junkier items. And it retained the services of a renowned neuroscientist and asked her to see if she can analyze versions of sweet drinks with less sugar in them to see if at what level we would be satisfied by those less sweet drinks, but still like them and want them because obviously sales is the bottom line of these companies. And this was Dana Small now at Yale. And she did this work and it was so fascinating that Dana sort of began, actually in the course of it, began uncovering some and raising some questions about our relationship to sweetness and liking and wanting and addiction that were troubling to the mainline sodas of PepsiCo and Coca-Cola and what have you. And when she started going down this path and it looked like trouble for the company, the company almost instantly cut off her funding and ended that line of research, much to the dismay of the people at PepsiCo who were working with Dana and who felt that sort of once the company went down this road and started this research, it had an obligation to sort of follow saying things through no matter where the chips fell, no pun intended. And I think that raises a real big question about these ultra processed foods is like, who's doing the research and who's deciding what to study and what not to study? My very favorite piece of research lately was done by the NIH just in 2019 it was the very first gold standard research trial involving two groups of people who were moved into an eating lab for two weeks and given two very different types of diets. One was an ultra processed food diet and one was sort of a natural food that, you know, you would cook from home by scratch. And lo and behold, the people who ate the ultra processed food gained weight. Terrific study, powerful, powerful message but my question is, what took 40 years for us to do that study? I mean, 40 years after the onset of obesity and kind of the answer lies in this sort of troubled world of science, where in many situations, the companies are more influential than government regulators in terms of deciding what gets looked at and what and more importantly, what doesn't get looked at. Yeah, sadly, you can probably follow the lobbyists and their money to figure out why it took so long to even acknowledge something so seemingly simple as that. I have to make an admission to you, Michael. I have an unhealthy hatred for ketchup. Unfortunately for my four- and six-year-old, they will probably be in therapy years down the road for the dirty looks I shoot them whenever they want ketchup with their french fries. Having said that, how is the company Heinz and their most famous product analogous for the deceptively marketed and hyper-sweet and processed food supply that we are dealing with in 2021. So I like ketchup, I have to say. So I'm, I'm different from you, although 
Sometimes I'll put Tabasco on my French fries, I, I have to say. Um, so Heinz was really interesting to me because speaking of French fries, they acquired at one point the French fry potato maker Orida and kind of perfected that corner of the freezer aisle with this huge variety of French fries. And one of their advertising slogans at one point went along the lines of, don't wait in line at the drive-in. You can turn your kitchen into you know, a drive-in restaurant with all these great frozen French fries that will sell you. And so Heinz was kind of this typical company that was acquiring different products and working to maximize their allure to sort of shape their eating habits. When company officials noticed that we were beginning to struggle with processed food products, convenience foods, we were putting on weight, we were starting to turn to various dieting methods to deal with that weight. And Heinz became the first of a series of big processed food companies which acquired, purchased, those same dieting methods. With Heinz, it was Weight Watchers. Other companies, you know, acquired or created things like Slim Fast and the South Beach Diet. And even Atkins was recently purchased by an investment group that that owns several fast food restaurants and I think the Cinnabon chain. But even more than that, the companies went into the grocery store and started creating all these diet versions of their mainline products. And so that's when you started to see the Hot Pocket brand owned by Nestle having right next to the Hot Pockets, the Lean Pockets. And it just kind of created the situations where you're going shopping and depending on kind of where you are on the spectrum of addiction, if you will, or vulnerability, or worried about your weight or distracted by something else, you're going to pull the hot pocket or the lean pocket. You may switch back and forth, you know, from week to week. And frankly, there isn't a whole lot of difference between the two when you really look at the nutrition content. And so this was an industry that not only got us hooked on their products, to the huge detriment of our health, but then it helped get us hook on dieting methods that for not all of us are very effective in helping us sort of lose that excess weight that we're getting from their products. I feel like in the last 10 years, people have started to wake up to just what the big food companies are doing with regards to hooking us on food. And as a matter of fact, this industry was forced to accept that in a way. And it was sparked by a speech by Campbell Soup Company CEO in 2015. How and why did big food respond to this wake-up call with protein? Oh, it was protein, right. And you're absolutely right. There was a meeting of all the big companies down in Florida with investors 2015, where the, the investment community was going, hey, wait a minute, you're losing sales on some of the junkier items. What are you going to do about that? And the head of Campbell said, publicly acknowledged that they were losing the trust of their customers and had to do something to regain their trust. One of the things they did was they got together with some scientists in Europe and looked at protein because there was some sense that protein delivers a satiating effect to us that'll help us deal with our cravings for their products. And maybe yes, maybe not. It's probably a complicated thing as everything is in, in nutrition. But the companies ran with that and began adding sums of protein to things like sugary cereal and then 
putting protein in big letters on the front of their package, sort of taking advantage of a potential truism in nutrition and running to the stream where it sort of makes no sense. Just the latest marketing ploy. You know, in 1970, the FDA did respond to the rise of processed food by requiring packaged foods to include nutritional information. How has big food exploited this attempt to implement a sort of check and balance on the industry? Well, if you're referring to that little part of the label called the nutrition facts box, where you have tiny print lines and lines of data, which I frankly can't figure out, at least in the context of like, oh, how much calcium should I be getting? And like, what is too much sugar? And at any rate, I was totally stunned to learn that kind of the invention of what seems to be a tool for us that we can use to deal with these hyper-processed food products, that that was invented or created or pushed by none other than the processed food industry itself as a means of sort of calming us down and alleviating our fears of what was in their products. And it kind of raises this bigger question too of like, Going forward, how should we look at these products? The industry loves it when we focus on one nutritional aspect of it. It's called nutritionism, whether it's sugar or fat, and they're really good at responding to that. So when we're concerned about sugar, they'll reduce the sugar and increase the fat and the salt. When we get worried about the salt, they'll lower the salt, but increase the fat and the sugar. And so, or calories, they're sort of terrific at reducing those at moments when we get really concerned about that one part. And it kind of misses the bigger picture and things like, you know, as Michael Pollan has sort of said, is this, at the end of the day, the real question is, is this real food? And that nutrition facts box also is missing, not addressing the question of, okay, so what's not in these products that I should be eating? And things like real fiber and other aspects too that you can't find in that label. So I was really struck how the companies are even using information against us to our detriment. Well, I feel like I've also heard or read that the FDA allows a pretty generous margin for error with the listed numbers on nutritional labels. Have you heard or read something like that too? Yeah, I've seen that too. You know, it's actually kind of, there's a bit of an art to measuring the calories in a product, right? You have to like take it and blenderize it and then sort of take a little sample. So there's definitely going to be some margin of error in terms of those number of calories. But I mean, I have just more of a fundamental problem with reading nutrition facts. I mean, I have no idea how many calories I eat during the day or kind of what my limit should be. And no doubt that changes from day to day too, depending on my resting metabolism, how much I'm putting out. And so, again, I think we can get so easily kind of hung up in that data that really is kind of meaningless day in, day out. I mean, the real problem here is that these companies are exploiting these basic instincts of ours to create these products in a way that made overeating an everyday thing for us so that even if you're not vulnerable to an eating disorder like binge eating, which happens at one end of the addiction spectrum, we're all vulnerable to just kind of like unknowingly day to day be eating just a little bit too much of these products, a little bit too many calories. And that's what's accumulating over time to where 
As you know, 42% of American adults now are clinically obese, not just overweight. That's another 30 plus percent, um, but clinically obese. And I think that's the bigger loss of control that we're talking about here in comparing food to drugs and their addictive qualities. Speaking of being overweight or dealing with obesity, one of the latter chapters of Hooked covers the role of genetics with food addiction. What are epigenetics and how might they affect our proclivities to food overconsumption? Yeah, so one of the ways that scientists kind of frame our dealing with modern food is that it's a complete mismatch to our genetics. I mean, for all of our history, we've been designed and have evolved to love food and to love to overeat. And the nature of the food, modern food, has really only been changed in the last 50 years. And there's no way that our genetics can catch up to that. But there's an aspect of epigenetics that can change the way we respond to things like food really quickly. And it can happen from one generation to the next generation. There's a famous study out of Holland during the war when people were starving. The next generation was more attracted to food and more apt to become overweight as a response to sort of those epigenetic changes in the starving generation. And one company, Nestle, which is one of the richest and largest processed food companies out there, became really fascinated by some work being done in France looking at people who by nature are described as being constitutionally thin. I met some of these researchers and their subjects. They can eat as much as they possibly want all day long and not gain a single pound of weight. In fact, they want to gain weight because they're very thin and they can't. They just can't get there. And so the researchers are going, What's going on here? I mean, what an incredible thing if we could discover what these people have and then give that to people who have the opposite problem. And it's a bit of the holy grail for the processed food industry, too. It's like, here, you can eat as much of this as you want, possibly could want, and you'll never gain weight. And so that's one of the things they're looking at in terms of genetics and epigenetics. But the alarming thing about epigenetics again, kind of this quick generational transfer of problems is that it probably means that obesity is going to get worse before it can possibly get better. We're already sort of passing on our addiction to hyper-processed foods and the consequences of that to the next generation um, um, without knowing it, without being able to stop it. And last thing, Michael, it's not every day I get to speak with a Pulitzer Prize winner. What does being a Pulitzer Prize winner mean to you? Well, you get a big party. In my case, it was at the New York Times where everybody gathers around and you get to thank, you know, the two million people who helped you generate the prize and your own family, of course, too, because it's never a one person thing. Michael Moss is a Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter and number one New York Times bestselling author of Salt, Sugar, Fat. His newest book is titled Hooked. Food, free will, and how the food giants exploit our addictions. Michael, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this wonderful book. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. Take care. And thanks to you for listening. Please do check out booksonpod.com. You can hear all of our episodes there, as well as subscribe to this podcast. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. 
helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.